0: All right, Hebrews chapter four, y'all ready? Starting in verse 14. I'm gonna read the whole passage through and then we're gonna go back and talk about it. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, "'You are my son. Today I have begotten you.'" He also says in another place, "'You are a priest forever.'" a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I wanna go give you our main point this morning, and it's this. Because Jesus is a perfect priest, you can approach the throne of grace with assurance of receiving mercy. Because Jesus is a perfect priest, you can approach the throne of grace with assurance, confidence, a guarantee, of receiving mercy. Um, I'm gonna take the passage a little bit out of order because I think it's helpful. Um, We're gonna get to the whole picture of what the passage is helping us to see. Jesus is a better priest in every way, okay? But I wanna start with a question, what is a priest and what is a high priest? And actually, the answer to this is pretty plain. You get a pretty great definition right at the start of chapter five, verse one. Anybody ever wonder what is a high priest? It is totally okay if you're like, what is a high priest? We do not really have uh, today, we don't in our culture or in our uh, religion of Christianity, in the majority here, we don't really deal with priests. Some of you might be familiar with priests, maybe from the Catholic Church, familiar with that role. Um, and you might think, what is this big deal? Well, it's a really big deal. Um, it's a big deal because in the Jewish religion, this is a, a, a position that God appointed. Uh, and it's a big deal because God appointed this position, yes, for his people uh, then, but also for us now to understand more of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And we need to really pay attention to what a high priest is. In verse one, we get a clear definition. And here it is. Y'all read look back at your scripture. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So three things that you pull out of here, if you wanna answer the question, what is a high priest? And they're this, just look at them right here in your scripture. Number one, the high priests are chosen from among men. They're chosen by God from among men. So a high priest is a man, it's somebody just like you or just like me who's chosen from among humans. <laughs> And they're chosen by God. Secondly, we see that the high priest is appointed with a specific purpose. What's the purpose of the high priest? The high priest is to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So you've got God and man. And the priest is basically to act as an intermediary between God and and man, which shows us one of the most fundamental problems of, it is the most fundamental problem of of humanity, and that is that our sin, our choice to rebel from God, to choose our own way, to act in disobedience, has separated us from God, and no longer can we directly relate to God without an intermediary. And the priests are set up to represent God to man, and to represent men to God. They are a mediator between God and man, and that is the appointment, that's the chief job, the job description of a high priest is to be an intermediary. And it says, thirdly, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It's the third part of the description. So you get this picture, this reference to the Old Testament system where the priest would literally be in the tabernacle and later the temple, which was the permanent tabernacle. And all day and all night, their their job, day in and day out, week in and week out, month after month of the year, was to, to receive gifts and sacrifices from the people because of, of sin. Sin has a consequence and that consequence is death. Therefore, they were handling death all the time by taking sacrifices and gifts in the altar, by pouring out blood. They were constantly dealing with sin, uh, offering that before God that he might, be, he might have mercy. That's what a high priest is in its basic definition. But what we see here. Oh man, my finger slipped. What we see here is that there, this was not a perfect system. See, the whole Old Testament system, and some of y'all get confused about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is wonderful, and the things that got appointed and put in place were wonderful, but none of it was designed to be perfect. None of it was designed to be eternal. It was all uh, kind of creating this deep longing for something that would be more perfect, for something that would be eternal, The Old Testament system was meant to to point our attention to the Messiah, ultimately. We see this was not a perfect system in the Old Testament because, just like if you look back at your scripture, in verse 2 and 3 it says that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. In other words, those who have sinned unintentionally, those who have sinned intentionally, since he himself is beset with weakness, but because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So, what you see is that there was a problem in the Old Testament high priestly system, it was imperfect and incomplete, and there's a couple of ways why. First of all, we see it's because they could not perfectly sympathize with people. As you went to the high priest, just like as you go to any other person, there is no other person in the world who's had the exact set of experiences that you've had who can empathize and sympathize with you, relate to you in every single way of your experience. The high priest could relate in some ways, but they could not relate in every way. Yes, they were beset with weakness. And so when you came to them, they being a weak, someone who was weak could understand weakness, but they could not perfectly sympathize. In addition to that, when they went to offer sin, you see in the Old Testament, like in the book of Numbers um, or Leviticus chapter 16, just the day of atonement. Like you see that as they went to offer sin on behalf of the people, they had to first offer a sacrifice because they themselves were sinful. There was no high priest that was perfectly able to offer sin on behalf, a sacrifice on behalf of the sin of the people because he himself was beset with sin. Therefore, he had to cover himself with blood, the blood of a sacrifice, because he was sinful and his family was sinful. And that had to be taken care of before he could perfectly help anyone else. And third, we see that no high priest in the Old Testament system could mediate for people forever. All from the very beginning of Aaron, Aaron, Aaron was the first guy who was appointed high priest in the Old Testament, okay? From Aaron all the way to every single successor after Aaron who fulfilled that role, the high priest role, every one of them, while they might have mediated well for a season, there was none of them that could mediate for people forever. You never knew the next morning if you woke up if Aaron might be dead because he was human, fleshly, had a limited life just as you, beset with weakness. So there was issues with the Old Testament high priestly system as, as well as it reflected something that God had set up that men have to have a mediator with God, that sins must be offered on their behalf. It was imperfect and flawed. And the people here that The author of Hebrews is writing to. They were living in the day where the high priestly system was still intact. These believers would have known, probably, or been around very close in proximity to the the temple where these sacrifices were still being made and the high priest was still being the intermediary. You know, you feel this obligation to go to this man and you're gonna confess and he's gonna offer some stuff for you and try to make you right with God. They were living in a day when this was still the system. And even today, people get confused sometimes because we know the chasm between us and God. We feel the deep need for a right relationship with God. Even today, people are tempted to go to other people, to go sit in the confessional booth at the Catholic Church. And I'm not crying out against that so much as just saying, a lot of times people think they have to go through another man, but the reality is there is no perfect man who can be your intermediary between you and God. It's a flawed system, though it in some ways points you to what we really need. In other ways, it just completely disappoints you because it just can't provide for you. It can't fulfill the need that a true and perfect high priest could. Thus, the writer of Hebrews comes on the scene. And now let's go back to chapter four, verse 14. And he goes, friends, friends, I'm coming with good news today. High five, awesome news. I am coming to let you know that we have a better priest in Jesus Christ. And not just better, comparatively better, but we have a perfect priest in Jesus Christ. All the aches and longing of this broken, incomplete, imperfect, sacrificial priestly system, all of it has been to, designed to Point our attention to pave the way for the coming of Jesus and friends he is here and God has appointed him not just to be better than angels or better than prophets or better than Moses but he has also appointed Jesus to be, to be our perfect priest all of the hopes and anticipations of what a perfect priest would be we find it in Jesus Christ and he says, friends, fix your attention on Jesus. Oh, this is good. Since then, verse 14, since then, therefore, you know, he's just been, we, where we left off last week, he's been encouraging us to be faithful, to be obedient, to persevere. Therefore, he, you know, the, the greatest antidote to a wayward heart is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you didn't know, the greatest help in your time of struggle and your desire to be faithful and obedient is to press in more to know Jesus. And he just, he pours on like oil into and, and the wound, whereas last time he kind of like poured on wine into the wound. It, you know, it was, a, it was a tough passage. He pours on oil now and he's saying, Oh, friends, don't you know? Don't you know who Jesus is? And don't you know what he's done? And don't you know what he's able to do since then? Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Friends, Jesus is a better priest. He's a perfect priest in every way, and I'm going to give you a few ways this morning. The first way is this, that he has a better title. Jesus has been given a better title. You see, in the Old Testament system, they were priests. People are Aaron's household, people who were... Are told to relate between God and man. They were the ones who handled your sacrifices as you came in, day in and out, to help you in a right relationship with God. There were priests and then there were high priests. The high priest was somebody like Aaron himself. The high priest was one of a special position. He was the head of the priest. He was the one who had a special anointing of God and had a special task on the day of atonement every year, Leviticus chapter 16. It was not the ordinary priest, but it was the high priest, the one who was over the priest. Who would wear the special garment, sacrifice in the special way, and take an offering for sin? You take the blood of an animal, a perfect animal, as an offering for sin. The sins of the people from the whole year past, and he would not just go into kind of that outer area of the temple, but he went into what we know as the holy of holies, the place that was divided off by a curtain, the place that no person could go where God's holy presence dwelt, and the Ark of the Covenant was there, the mercy seat, that lid of the covenant that we talk about. There was this it's the picture of this place where the holy, our holy of holy, eternal God dwells. On that day, the high priest was appointed to go in with the blood of a perfect sacrifice and make atonement for the sins of the people for the whole year past. Well, Jesus here in verse 14 is not just called a priest, he's not just called a high priest, though he has both of those roles. But what does your scripture say? Look back at it. What does it say? What does it call him? A great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest. Friends, this is a title that no other priest, no other high priest has been given. Jesus has inherited a role, a position that is greater than any other priest in all of history. He is called our great high priest. And friends, he didn't just enter the Holy of Holies in a tabernacle made by man, but it says he has passed through the heavens. In other words, he's not going in with. Sacrifice that's going to atone for sins into some man-made building. He went in with a sacrifice that would atone for sins, mainly his own body and blood, and he didn't enter into that man-made building. He entered into the very presence of God himself in front of God to offer atonement. For the sins of all who would trust and surrender their life to him, once and for all and to the heavenly places, Jesus has gone. Friends, he's not a priest. He's not a high priest. He is our great high priest. Jesus is his name, which means Savior. And it says here, the Son of God. No other person has had this title and we've looked at it before For God so loved the world that he gave his one and his only son. This is no other intermediary. This is a great, the greatest of intermediaries, the final eternal intermediary. He is Jesus, the son of God who's passed through heavens and he has inherited a title above all others that he is our great high priest. Let us hold fast to our confession. So that's the first reason that Jesus is better; he's our perfect priest, is that he has a better title. The second reason is this: is that he has he offers a better sympathy. Jesus offers a better sympathy. If you look at verse fifteen, am I going too fast for y'all? Anybody need me to slow down? All right, good. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. What, Jesus is, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus is able to sympathize with you. Yes, Jesus is exalted, but friends, Jesus is not inaccessible. This is one of the most wonderful things about our God. If you don't sit and contemplate these truths often, I just encourage you to do that. We have an eternal God, the creator of all things, who is highly exalted in every way. We have one who is not just a priest, a high priest, but a great high priest, the one, only one in all of history who can perfectly be the intermediary between us and God, making sacrifice for sin once and for all by entering into the presence of God himself. You would think, oh my gosh, how could I ever approach him? (laughs) Right? wonderful thing about our God is that, yes, he's exalted, but friends, he's also accessible. And unlike any other person that you would ever meet, Jesus is able, friend, to sympathize with you. To know sympathy is just knowing what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes Jesus is able to sympathize with you, not just in some ways in this part of my life or that part of my life or this part of my temptation or that part of my temptation, but it says in every way. He offers sympathy to you. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. It's one of the most beautiful things about Jesus' humanity. We looked at this a bit ago as how he is better than angels, but one of the wonderful things about his humanity, yes, he is God, but he is also man, and because he is man, friends, as you approach God, you don't have to wonder, you know, he does not understand what it's like for me to feel lonely. He didn't understand what it's like for me to feel exhausted, or he didn't understand what it's like to to feel rejected. He didn't understand what it's like to cry or to lose. He didn't understand what it's like in the face of obedience to have to give everything up. Glenn's testimony this morning made me cry when he started talking about his family and just what it's like to know that you're doing what's right for God, but to seemingly have to walk away from things that are so precious and dear. You don't have to say that he doesn't understand this or he doesn't understand that. Even the, the most rudimentary temptations the desire for physicality or for pleasure, those, those desires that often go wayward in our own heart with how we fulfill them. We don't have, to, we don't have to, to think that Jesus does not understand. For the Bible says that he was tempted as we are in every way. You, you just look at Jesus in the desert, for instance, Matthew chapter 4, and you can see how he's tempted with success. He's tempted with worldly recognition. He's tempted with, with um, pleasures and money. I mean, you look at his life and you can see the temptations over and over again. How he always obeys the Father, but he does it sometimes through great agony and grief the difficulties that he faced in life. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He had no place to lay his head. He was deserted by his closest friends and followers. I mean, for crying out loud, they had bounty on top of his head at one point. Friends, we have a high priest, an intermediary between us and God who understands what it's like to live, to live your life, to live mine. Everything that you face, he has faced. Everything you desire, he has desired. You're tempted by, he's tempted by. He understands us because he was human just like us. But here's the wonderful thing. It says he was tempted in every way, but what does the Bible say? Yet without sin. Yet without sin, he experienced everything that, we could experience. He understands weakness. He understands the difficulties of obeying God. But he has experienced those things without faltering in his obedience or his devotion to God. In every single moment of temptation, he has conquered by the word of God, the spirit of God, the promises of God. Jesus has been faithful. He is pure through and through. How beautiful is our great high priest that while he sympathizes and understands weakness and temptation, he also stands ready to help us because he has not succumbed to that temptation, but in every time he is fully overcome, he is victorious. How beautiful is Jesus. He offers a better sympathy. And aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful? C.S. Lewis knew that some people would probably object to whether or not um, Jesus really knew what temptation is like because he was sinless. And you could say, well, maybe he led a sheltered life or is out of touch with how strong temptations can be. And he just simply said this. He goes, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after a mere five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness, for they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. But Jesus Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows what full temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Jesus, friends, offers a better sympathy. Third, we see that Jesus gives a better mercy. He gives an open access to God. Jesus gives a superior, better mercy, giving us open access to God. If you look at verse 16, it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus offers a better mercy. This word approach implies in the Greek continuous action. It means that we would constantly be approaching. In other words, he's saying, keep on approaching. And he says the throne of grace. This is a reference to God's presence. You know, as we approach God, we must not forget. I love that he describes it like this, a throne of grace, because we get this picture that God is a king. He is a sovereign, and we must not forget just because he offers mercy who he is. His rightful place is king, Lord of lords. Over all of our life, we owe everything to God. As we approach, we approach a throne, but in his sovereignty, he has chosen that this throne be a throne of grace. Praise Jesus. And it says, let's go with confidence. In other words, go boldly. He literally means without reservation. The Greek literally means to to speak without fear. In other words, frankly, just as you are without fear, with total freedom, you, you always be going to the throne of our king, whose throne is a throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Some people wonder the difference between mercy and grace and one good way to understand it is that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve where grace is getting what you do not deserve. Mercy, kindness, compassion, grace, the unmerited favor and love of God in action for you always. When we approach the throne of grace, what awaits us is the mercy of God Not dealing with us as our sins deserve punishment, condemnation, death, and separation from him forever. He is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve, and yet he is gracious. He pours on his love and his grace and his kindness and his faithfulness and his promise and his hope and his future, his redemption, his salvation, power. All of these wonderful things that God pours on us as we approach the throne of grace. We can expect mercy, and we can expect grace for what? To help us. When in our time of need, the word basically means in a timely way, when you need it, he's there ready to help you. In the moment of your weakness, in the moment of your temptation, in the moment of your struggle, in the moment of your loss, in the moment of rejection, in the moment of despair, he is there as your king who sits on a throne but a throne of grace. Let us always be approaching this throne because our high priest is there to administer to us a better mercy, to offer to us an open access better than anyone has ever known. And he will sit on that throne forever. And amen. Friends, this is Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? Come on. Are y'all awake? Isn't he wonderful? Is your heart stirred how amazing and excellent he is in every way? I heard uh, one guy, David Jeremiah, who was talking about Hebrews one time and he used this example and I thought it was a great example. He talked about when JFK was president. There was a famous picture that came out of little John John in JFK's office. And I think I've got the picture for y'all to see today. But see, little John John, there he is. Right there, JFK working there at that office, that desk of great power dealing with the most important things in our country, the highest of all people in our country as it relates to power in the executive branch. And yet, here little John John is, and it was told of JFK that many times, you know, John John and his other children had complete access to the Oval Office, and that seems kind of peculiar, doesn't it? At any time, you know, little John John could just run in uninterrupted, unhindered, That's what it's like to be a father who is the most powerful in all the land and yet completely open and accessible to his children. Friends, we are little John John. As we approach the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, he sits on his throne, but it is a throne of grace. And because of Jesus, there is mercy, there is access. And yes, we shouldn't take advantage of that. We should still go into this throne room with reverence and with trembling, with thankfulness. But friends, let's not get over that we have access to the King of Kings. Praise God that he offers a better mercy and an open access forth we see that Jesus has a better ordination. He has a better ordination. If you look back at chapter five, let's go to verse four. He says, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him, who said to him, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. He quotes from Psalm 2, and he also quotes from Psalm 110. And he basically says, ordination is a big deal among priests. There is no man who can sit around and say, Well, I want to become a high priest. Maybe I'll run for office. I think I could do a better job than Aaron. That's not the way it worked with high priests. It's not something that you could aspire to or you can campaign for or anything like that. You have to be chosen and ordained by God. And if you look at the Old Testament, like with King Saul in 1 Samuel 13, or Korah in Numbers chapter 16, or King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, all of these men try to take over the role of the priest, and it went very badly for them. You don't mess with the role of the high priest. That was someone who's chosen by God, ordained by him for that purpose. So therefore, you've got to look at, was Jesus ordained? And what he says is, no one takes this honor for himself. We know that. Only when he's called by God, just as what Aaron was. But let me tell you, friends, Jesus has a superior ordination. His ordination is better than any of the other high priests. Yes, he was ordained, but he's ordained in a way that nobody else has. For he didn't exalt himself, verse 5, to be made high priest, but he was appointed. Just as it said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 was a, a kingly psalm. It was meant to be a coronation psalm in the day. The psalm that would be read when a king was coronated, ordained. To his office. But they couldn't find a king that was worthy of this psalm, so they turned it into a messianic psalm, a hope of the one who was to come. And here the writer pulls out this very coronation psalm and said, There's one now who you can apply it to, and his name is Jesus. You are my son. It's an appointment, it's an anointing, it's an ordination. And in another place, like I said in Psalms, he quotes that you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Some of y'all are going, who is Melchizedek? When I first read this, I was like, I want to know the same thing. This is a weird weird name, you know? You're not gonna get a baby name out of that. So we're gonna look at Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter seven. So know that I'm not bypassing this. We're gonna look at it because he comes back to this in Hebrews chapter seven. But Melchizedek is special. And what he's saying is that Jesus is special. He didn't come in the line of Aaron, but he did come in the line of a priest. And this priest was different than the Aaronic priest and better because he was a king and he was eternal. And we'll talk about that later. But Jesus has a better ordination. And finally, we see that Jesus provides a better and eternal salvation. Y'all didn't think I was gonna get through on time, did you? Here we go. Jesus provides an eternal salvation. A better eternal salvation. Verses 7 through 10, it says In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, the priest and the high priest of the Old Testament time, you'd walk in and they'd be able to mediate for sin for a while by the sacrifices that God had prepared for them. But what we're gonna look at later in more detail is that the sacrifices of goats and bulls could never fully take away sin. There was always some flaw in those sacrifices. They could mediate for a time, but they couldn't cleanse the soul and conscience forever. Friends, we need more than just a temporary mediation. We need to be made right with God forever. That's our only hope. We need an eternal redemption. An eternal salvation, a forgiveness of sins that's real and lasting, a purification of our heart and lives that's, that's completely true. We need only what Jesus can give. And it says that we have a high priest who was made perfect in every way. He was made perfect by what he suffered. Jesus by enduring temptation by overcoming sin by obeying God in every single circumstance he is now righteous in every way and he is allowed by his grace for us to inherit his righteousness for his perfection to count for ours though we are undeserving it says here Some people may question, what does it mean made perfect? Wasn't Jesus already perfect? We talked about this a little bit ago. When we were talking about angels, but what it, it doesn't mean that he actually was not perfect and then became perfect. It says that he basically this word is he was made complete. He was made fitting to be a savior by his his track record of perfect obedience, time and time and time and time and time and time and time again. By his perfect record, friends, he is now able to offer to you and to me an eternal salvation not a temporary covering, but he is able to fully forgive sins for he didn't offer the blood of goats and bulls. He offered his own blood, friends. And he is able to provide righteousness for it's not about our record, but it's about his. And he obeyed perfectly in every way and is willing to give his perfection to all who believe and obey him. He is the author of eternal salvation. Now I say all this to say this morning, friends, come on. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus proves to be our great high priest who is perfect in every way? Because Jesus is a perfect priest, because Jesus is a perfect priest, we can approach his throne of grace with the assurance of receiving mercy. We can approach his throne of grace with the assurance of receiving mercy. As Robbie comes, there are two things that I see as application points for you today. You know there's, amidst all of this wonderful proclamation and exaltation in Jesus, there are two instructions for us in verse 14 and in verse 15 and 16. And they're this. I can summarize them just saying this. Because Jesus is a great high priest, our perfect priest, let us persevere and let us pray in our time of need. He says, the implications of this, let us hold fast to our confession without wavering is the instruction in verse 14. In other words, let us persevere. Friends, in our desire and striving for obedience, we don't strive with the strength that that we have. We, We strive because of the work that God has done on our behalf. We strive because we have a faithful one, a great high priest who intercedes on our behalf in the heavenly places, who will allow us to endure until the end. We we strive, yes, for obedience. We want to enter into that place of promised rest. We want to hear and apply the word of God. But friends, we do it with our eyes set on one who has given himself for us in mercy and in grace, who has invited us to the throne that we might have all that we need in him. As we work, we work with the grace that God supplies. We let's persevere, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And secondly, friends, let us pray in our time of need. I got a newsflash for you: you're not God, and you really need Him. As you walk into work every morning, you need the Lord. As you strive to be a good mom and dad, you need the Lord. As you want to love your spouse as Christ has loved us, you need the Lord. As you seek to do well in school, you need the Lord. As you work toward obedience and you figure out God's call in your life, you need the Lord. In every moment of every day, friends, you need God. You need him. We are needy people. This says, recognize your need and go to him because there's access once again because you have an intermediary who by his own blood has opened the way for you to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Praise God. Therefore, let's not let our guilt and our shame and our fear keep us from going to God who we so desperately need. Let's live in prayer knowing that his arms are open wide for his children not by what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. Let's persevere and let's pray. We have the great high priest who's better in every way. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the word that you speak to us. And we just pray today, God, I pray for every person here. I know that there are people here who struggle with sin, who are wondering what it's like to have a relationship with you, who so desperately need you maybe wonder if you're there, if you're available. Lord, help us to know today that, Lord, we come to you, Jesus, as our great high priest, our perfect intermediary between us and the eternal God. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the son of God. You're perfect and better in every way. And, Lord, you've opened the way, mercy, grace, and our time of need. Lord, but it comes, we've got to trust you. We've got to surrender to you. We have to obey you the eternal source of salvation for all who obey you. So Lord, I pray that if there's any heart here who is not trusting you and not surrendered to you, who's not obeying you, that today we would just bring our hearts back to you and just proclaim, Jesus, you are better.